Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. It is said that those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it, and it seems, unfortunately, that the memories of many Americans are limited and faulty, so it's all the more important that we have historians like Eric Foner to track down the facts and convey them to us in a way that shines light on our history, in a way that helps us be wiser today. Eric's 20-some books has focused on the 1800s, especially on slavery, the Civil War, and Reconstruction. So for Black History Month 2016, we're going to get Eric Foner on the line to talk about two of his latest books, Gateway to Freedom, about the Underground Railroad, and The Fiery Trial, about Abraham Lincoln and American slavery. I tell you folks, these books have opened up my eyes to so much that was obscured by the history I learned in school, and the lessons to be learned here, if absorbed by more people, promise a better future, not only for African Americans, but for all marginalized people in our society. Thanks to Dan Neerhagen for pointing me in Eric's direction, as Eric Foner, professor of history at Columbia University, joins us by phone from his office at Columbia. Eric, I'm absolutely delighted to have you here today for Spirit in Action. Very nice to talk to you, Mark. I did just finish reading Gateway to Freedom last night, The Hidden History of the Underground Railroad, and you're already on to another book or something, all right? No, actually, I'm sort of in between projects. I'm teaching uh, this term. I have a fairly busy schedule, so I'll think about that after the semester is over. Well, there are some resources people should know about, and if they get really titillated by what we talk about in this hour, there are some free online courses via Columbia. I'll have a link on my website, uh, The Civil War and Reconstruction. Right. This is what they call a MOOC, or three MOOCs, actually. Um, They're open to the public. They're online courses. They're free of charge. Nobody has to pay to take them. They're basically my Columbia lecture course on the coming of the Civil War, Civil War and Reconstruction. But many thousands of people have taken it. It was run last year. It's running again this year. And anyone interested in the Civil War era is more than welcome to just click into, well, you're giving the link or edX, is, it's through them, or Columbia X. If you Google that, you'll find it pretty quickly. So on northernspiritradio.org, we'll have a link to ericphoner.com. I'll have links to more information, including these online courses that you can take for free. 
But you're of some renown. You've covered this area of the 1800s pretty extensively in the, I counted, 23 books that you've written so far. Have you worn out your material, or is there more coming? I don't know. There always seemed to be something new to be said. I may have written 23, but there were thousands, tens of thousands of books about the Civil War era, about Lincoln, about slavery, and they keep coming out. So the point is, if you have new questions, new approaches, or sometimes new evidence, hard as that is to believe, yeah, you can write new things. So I don't think I've said the last word yet. Actually, I had a little bit of a hidden desire to see you go into a new second career. I noted on your Wikipedia page that your mother was a high school art teacher, your father a historian. That's right. And then, of course, the woman you marry does what? Well, she teaches the history of dance at Barnard College and writes uh, books about dance history. I do not claim any expertise in that field other than by osmosis, reading what she writes. So I doubt if I have a career as a dance historian ahead of me. Well, at least you have a tutor at home to get you going. Absolutely. But we're going to talk about two of your books this time, the two that I read just in the last couple of weeks, The Fiery Trial, Abraham Lincoln and American Slavery, and Gateway to Freedom, The Hidden History of the Underground Railroad. Because, after all, it is Black History Month, and it'd be good to highlight some of this. And I, from what I read in the book, it seemed that one of the very important motivations for you to write Gateway to Freedom was that usually when we talk about the Underground Railroad, we tend to highlight the whites who were so nobly helping out the fleeing slaves and that there are a lot of African-Americans who were very much putting it on the line. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I'm not the first person to emphasize that, but I think it is very important. Obviously, to begin with, without people running away from slavery, there wouldn't be any Underground Railroad. There wouldn't be any fugitive slave issue in national politics. So the first initiative is taken by African-American slaves with great resourcefulness, great courage, who tried to run away from slavery. Many who tried failed. There were slave patrols, there were slave catching organizations. It wasn't very easy to run away from slavery, but it was their efforts that got this going. And then when they did reach the North and got somehow plugged into the Underground Railroad, the Underground Railroad, one of the reasons I think it's worth thinking about, it was an interracial organization. It was black and white people working together in a common just cause. And, you know, today... um, Race relations in the country are a little bit tense, let's say, and I think it's uh, inspiring to go back and read about black and white people who work together in this way. So it was interracial, but that means that there were many African Americans who were deeply involved in it in the North, free black people who helped fugitives on their way. The records of them are not as rich. You know, the white abolitionists left a lot more historical archives, so to speak, than ordinary free black people in the North. So digging up that information was a challenge, but I think I did find a lot of it, which is in the book. Is that because perhaps a number of the blacks, like Napoleon you mentioned, that they're not literate? Napoleon, Louis was a great surprise. Yeah, I'd never heard of Louis Napoleon until I got into this research. And he was a black man in New York City who was really a key guy on the streets, finding fugitives who may have come hidden on boats or by railroad into the city and getting them to this Underground Railroad office where he worked and then getting them up to, you know, on trains to upstate New York and Canada. Yes, Louis Napoleon was illiterate, so naturally he's not going to leave a written record. 
what's interesting is even though he was illiterate, he was able to go to court to get writs of habeas corpus to try to bring fugitives into the courts to try to help them. He was active against kidnappers who were grabbing black people, mostly children, off the streets to try to sell them into slavery. So he was a remarkable guy, uh, but you're right, of course, as an illiterate person, he's not leaving much of a historical record. Most of the blacks involved were literate. Uh, they were black abolitionists. They were black ministers. Napoleon's unusual. But the fact is that white abolitionists, and I am not criticizing them, they were tremendously courageous. But after the Civil War, many, many white abolitionists wrote memoirs, wrote their own accounts of what had happened to try to draw attention to you know, the next generation, to understand what the struggle against slavery had been. So we do have a lot more about the white abolitionists than African-Americans who were, you know, there's a few very famous ones, Frederick Douglass, Harriet Tubman, we know all about them. But these anonymous, not well-known African-Americans, it's still difficult to piece together their full stories. Now, I grew up being told that Levi Coffin was considered president of the Underground Railroad, but I think the only time he's mentioned in your book actually is in the footnotes at the end. That's the only time I found the name. My book is about the Eastern Underground Railroad because the book originated, you know, I tell this story in actually a student finding and then pointing out to me a document in the Columbia University archives here written by uh, Sidney Howard Gay, who was a white abolitionist activist anti-slavery editor in New York City, and he kept this thing called the Record of Fugitives for two years, where for 1855 and 56, he recorded the experiences of over 200 men, women, and children, fugitives who passed through New York City, and he was helping them. He and Napoleon worked together. They would be brought to his office. He would find them a place to stay, get them on a train, get them clothing, etc. But he interviewed them he recorded their experiences. It's a remarkable two documents, two notebooks. I worked outward from that. So I'm, in, I'm writing about the Eastern Underground Railroad, the routes coming up from Virginia, Maryland, Delaware, up through Pennsylvania, New York, and then up to Canada. There's a whole other Western Underground Railroad. That's where Levi Coffin is operative in Ohio. So that's not part of my book, but there's plenty to be said about him also if someone else writes that book. Well, on your part of it, New York, it actually includes the Iron Railroad that we all know about, which had grown tremendously in the early 1800s. Was it similar in the Western? A little less similar in that most of the railroads in the West were going east to west. These railroads in New York were going up to Albany, Syracuse, Canada, so it was easier to get a fugitive on there and off they went, whereas in Ohio, let's say, it was a little trickier. But by the 1850s, yeah, there were railroads all over the place. Now, you are, as you said, concentrating on New York in this book. <laughs> One of the things that I thought about that, it's like, come on, get a better idea, folks. New York is a bad way to go. I, <laughs> I don't know if there could have been a worse route on the east. Well, it was a hub because it was a transportation hub, but New York was not a very hospitable place for black people in general or for fugitives. You know, I'm a New Yorker. I've been one all my life. We like to pride ourselves on our progressive outlook, our multiculturalism, our welcoming to new people. You know, we have our Statue of Liberty. It wasn't like that before the Civil War. First of all, slavery existed in New York all the way down to 1827. And then even after that, there were slaves on the streets. It was legal until 1841 for Southerners to bring slaves with them if they visited New York for up to eight months or something like that. 
So slavery was a presence here long into the 19th century, but maybe more important, New York was totally tied into the southern economy. New York merchants basically controlled the cotton trade. New York bankers financed the expansion of slavery. The 1%, to use a modern term, of New York City were completely tied into the slave south. So they weren't very hospitable to abolitionists, to fugitives. So no, you were not safe in New York. The first thing that these Underground Railroad guys did when fugitives arrived was get them out of New York City because there were slave catchers on the streets looking for them, etc. So, yeah, New York was a dangerous place for black people, but because it was a hub of railroads, real railroads, you could get into New York and out of New York fast, and so that was, transportation-wise, it was uh, a good place to pass through. A number of the stories you share include people who flee slavery, go to Philadelphia, go to New York, and on up to safer territory like Boston or Syracuse or whatever, and then some of them come back down, even to New York. Is that just because they like to live a bit on the wild side? Uh, (laughs) Most of them didn't go down. They went up to Canada, basically. Certainly in the 1850s, after the passage of the federal fugitive slave law of 1850, you had to get out of the country. You, You were not safe anywhere. After 1850, capturing fugitives was a responsibility of the federal government. Up to that time, basically up to the states, The U.S. Army, the U.S. Marshals, U.S. Commissioners would be active in doing this, and it really, the enforcement picked up very radically in the 1850s. So many fugitives who had lived in the North before this fled to Canada. Even if you'd been there 10, 20 years, there was no statute of limitations on being recaptured. I don't think too many now. You know, I don't know, you know, Harriet Tubman went back into the South seven times in the 1850s. She escaped and she went back seven times to lead other people out. That was incredibly courageous. I do tell the story of one or two other people, Frank Wanzer, who got out and then came back to Virginia to lead out some members of his family. That was kind of unusual, though. Well, Harriet Tubman, she was going back. Uh, one of her major objectives is to get family members back, right? Yeah, she had an extended family. She went back to bring them out, but also people who knew them, friends of theirs. uh, Some of them were family members, some of them weren't. We estimate, it's a little unclear, that she led maybe 70 to 80 people out altogether during these various forays. And she passes twice through New York and is there in this record of fugitives, these documents that Sidney Howard Gay kept the longest entry is about Harriet Tubman. He gives her whole life story. She passes through his office with some fugitives. But that suggests that Gay at least knew her. By the way, parenthetically, let me say in terms of these links, I have digitalized this document. Anyone out there listening who's interested in this story of fugitive slaves or high school teachers are using this now, we have digitalized these two little notebooks which are full of all these stories of fugitive slaves and put them online. And also a transcript. The handwriting is pretty good, but I also have a typed transcript of it. If you want to see what the story of a fugitive slave is, just dip anywhere into these documents. They're pretty remarkable, and they're online now. When I first wrote my book, they were not online, but now we've put them up there. And one place to start to find this is to go through nordenspiritradio.org, ericphoner.com. Phoner is F-O-N-E-R. Ericphoner.com. 
Again, folks, there's some 23 books that Eric has written that I've been able to count. Oh, I had another thought about the railroad situation. Again, something that was very common is because the slave states interfaced with states like Pennsylvania, slaves frequently made a, across the border. Philadelphia, Quakers hang out there. They know that it's a lot of people who are anti-slavery there. They then get put on a train going to New York and then from New York north frequently. The question I had was, wasn't this counterintuitive, kind of dangerous? I mean, you put someone on a train, it's like putting them in a bottleneck as opposed to the people who are traveling by land. You're absolutely right. On the one hand, a train is quick. I mean, if you want to get from Philadelphia to New York... The train is, you know, what, at that time, seven, eight hours? I don't know. Whereas if you do it by foot, look how long it'll take, or by wagon or something. So the train is quick. Now, the fact is, it is not against the law in the South. In the South, a black person traveling alone has to have a pass, either a free paper proving they're a free person or a pass from their owner. And any white person can apprehend a black person and say, oh, well, where's your evidence here? You, you, you're a runaway. Now, prove to me that you have permission to be here or that you're free. So, for example, Frederick Douglass, when he escaped in 1838 by train from Baltimore to New York, he borrowed the free papers of a black sailor, and he just got on the train. And they asked him, who are you? He said, well, here, there's my papers. So he got there. Now, once you got to Pennsylvania and New York, there's no laws against a black person traveling. Any free black person can go on a train with no, nobody has a right to bother him. So on the one hand, you know, if a slave catcher was after you, it was dangerous. And there was a case that I wrote about of a guy named Pembroke and his two sons who escaped from Maryland, and they were followed on the train by slave catchers. They actually got to New York, but then they were captured the next day. The slave catchers found out where they were being hidden, captured them, and they were brought back to the South. So fugitive slaves could use the train, but slave catchers could also use the train to get after them pretty quickly. So you're right, but the fact is, because of the speed of the train, it was the best way to go. And then once you left New York, in a day or two, you're in Canada. You know, So it was dangerous, but it was less dangerous than other modes of transportation. I still was wondering, I found myself, you know, I, I know there were advertisements to try and mm -hmm. capture the slaves, but also the slaves would change their names, like Pembroke became Pennington, right? Right, exactly. They all changed their names. This made the task of the historian a little tricky, because tracking them down, now you need two names for each person. They changed their names when they got to the north, you know, to avoid detection. But, you know, no, it was dangerous. People were captured. They were sent back. There were cases all through the 1850s of slaves being captured in the north, being sent back to the south. You know, my estimate is, and this is really a guess, that all told, maybe a thousand slaves a year managed to get out and, become, and really get to freedom. 1830 to 1860. So that's 30,000. I mean, that's good. 30,000 people got out of slavery. But, you know, in 1860, there were 4 million slaves. So 1,000 a year escaping is not destroying the system of slavery. But it's enough that it made the fugitive issue a major bone of contention, if you want to call it that, in national affairs, you know. Southerners got very riled up when they couldn't get back their fugitive slaves. I did wonder exactly how it worked. I really had never thought about the fact that you'd have Maryland, which had a lot of free blacks as well as slaves. And I think you mentioned there was one city, I think it was Maryland, 93% of the black folks there were free. 
that, that was Delaware, really, where 93 oh, Delaware, yes. But Maryland, half were free by this time. So you, you had a lot of free blacks in those states, which meant that black people traveling around was a fairly common sight. In South Carolina or Mississippi, let's say Mississippi, in 1860, there were like 800 free Negroes in all of Mississippi. So a black person traveling by himself would immediately arouse suspicion. There just aren't any free blacks. But Maryland and Delaware had quite a few, and that made it a little easier for slaves to sort of make believe they were free. I did wonder how practically this worked. I mean, as you said with Pembroke, I mean, he, you take an ID from someone, you travel, wow, you've gotten free. Uh, not so simple, but, you know, it worked uh, haphazardly. We should not think of the Underground Railroad as a giant, highly organized system. We certainly should not use the railroad metaphor very literally. You know, there were no fixed routes, timetables, fixed stations. You know, we sometimes use that language, which makes it seem like it was more organized than it was. It was, you know, little groups of people, both in rural areas and cities. They communicated with each other, so that's correct. The Underground Railroad was putting people from one place to another. But it wasn't a hell of a lot of people. I mean, my estimate is that in New York City which had half a million population in 1850, there were maybe a dozen people at any one time actively working to help fugitive slaves. No more. You know, there were people on the street who'd help a guy if he ran into him, but that's not the Underground Railroad. So it was a small scale. It was not highly organized, but organized enough. But given that, it's uh, remarkable they did have a lot of success. Could you say something about the demographics of the people who tended to be active in helping folks via the Underground Railroad? Well, you know, these are people in the abolitionist movement. The Underground Railroad was one, you might almost say, one factor or one branch of the abolitionist movement. And these guys were also doing other things. Gay is running a newspaper. Abolitionists in the Underground Railroad are attending conventions and circulating petitions and writing pamphlets. In other words, this is one part of their anti-slavery work. So there were two kinds of people. There were these free Negroes who were rather poor, most of them. There were very great obstacles in northern cities to blacks getting ahead economically. Uh, so they were rather poor, but they did manage to get a lot done. And then there were these abolition, white abolitionists, most of whom were sort of middle class. Many of them were religiously inspired. They had been the evangelical Protestants, and they really wanted to purge the country of the sin of slavery. Some of them were Quakers, as you said. Quakers were known for anti-slavery sentiment. So you have this combination of African Americans who are pretty modest in circumstance, and then white abolitionists who probably are a little bit better off. And occasionally you get people like Lewis and Arthur Tappan. The Tappans are the wealthy ones. They are very, in New York, very, very rich silk merchants, really. And they, you know, Louis Tappan particularly, basically funded. When you needed money, you went to Louis Tappan, you know. And he put his money where his mouth was. Uh, and he helped fugitives, but he did many, many other things. He agitated for anti-slavery. But, you know, this is where you get into the irony. Some black abolitionists criticized Louis Tappan because he, he had these shops in Manhattan selling goods, and he didn't hire black clerks. He would not hire blacks in his own shops. And he was criticized. He said, look, I can't hire black because if I have a black clerk, no white person is going to walk in there to, to buy anything. White people will not go into a shop like that. Well, he was right. So I can't hire blacks. But then black abolitionists, well, you're not helping any black people. You know, you should be helping blacks move ahead economically. So on the one hand, he won't hire blacks in his shop. On the other hand, he hides them in his house in Brooklyn Heights 
while they're on their way to freedom. So people's lives are complicated. <laughs> That's all I can say. There is a very complicated story to be told, not only in Gateway to Freedom, but the fiery trial. And I want to get to that in just a moment. But first, I want to remind our listeners that we're speaking with Eric Foner. He's in the Department of History at Columbia University. We're talking about a couple of his books over the last six years, but there's many more to look at. This is Spirit in Action, which is a Northern Spirit Radio production. We're on the web at northernspiritradio.org, and on that site you'll find more than ten and a half years of our programs for your free listening and download. You'll also find a place where you can connect up with Eric Foner and the free courses that he has available online, many other guests that we've had over the years, There's a place to post comments, and we love two-way communication, so please, when you visit the site, click and leave a comment. Also, there's a place to donate. That is how this is funded. We don't have any Lewis Tappan to support us, so we need your support to make sure this happens. But even more important than supporting Northern Spirit Radio, I want to encourage you to support your local community radio station. They provide a slice of news and music you get nowhere else on the American airwaves. It's really crucially important that you support them, so start by doing that. Again, Eric Foner is here. Foner is F-O-N-E-R. If you're not a history devotee, you should be because his books will make you thirsty for more. His website, ericfoner.com. Again, we've talked a fair amount about Underground Railroad to start off with, but I found absolutely gripping the story in The Fiery Trial, Abraham Lincoln and American Slavery. And what really grabbed me in that, Eric, is the much more honest, open-eyed history of what happened, not only Abraham Lincoln, but slavery in general. Because I grew up thinking, basically, that Abraham Lincoln was a good guy, you know. He came out of his log cabin, opposed slavery, became president, and it was all good. But it's so much more complex than that. He was a consummate politician, I think. Uh, he was. He was. Uh, he was a good guy. I wouldn't deny that. But he was not the um, great emancipator all by himself. He didn't free all the slaves with a stroke of his pen. He shared some of the racial prejudices of his era. For many years, he was an advocate of what we call colonization. That is, that slavery should be ended, but the black people should be sent over to Africa or to the Caribbean or Central America. He couldn't quite imagine the United States as a biracial society of free people. But my, the argument in my book, as you know, is that really what's important about Lincoln is his growth, his capacity for growth. He actually, at the end of his life, he had outgrown many of his earlier views, and he was not Martin Luther King Jr., you know, but he, he had this capacity to rethink. He was open-minded to change his policies when one was not working. So really the book is about his evolution. You know, as you say, there are, look, how many thousands of books are there about Lincoln? Quite a few. Quite a few of them give you the impression that Lincoln was born with the Emancipation Proclamation in his hand, you know, and that for his whole life is just one trajectory toward freeing the slaves. But that's obviously not really realistic. So I'm trying to track out how Lincoln did get to where he ended up, and it wasn't just a straight line. There were detours, there were bad decisions as well as good ones. In other words, Lincoln was a human being. That's not too surprising, except that half the books on Lincoln, they make him into a statue, you know, a god, and no person is really uh, like that. 
some of the complexities that, from my point of view today, after having read, it seems so obvious to me, but which I was completely unconscious of. I'm 61 years old. I had plenty of years to open my eyes to this, but I missed it. So, for instance, could you explain some of the difference between someone who's a Garrisonian, someone who's anti-slavery, someone who's an abolitionist? <laughs> we tend to group these things together, but in fact, they're vastly different, and they vied with one another. And of course, I mean... Abolitionists were radicals of the time. They demanded the immediate end of slavery and the elevation of the freed slaves into citizens, equal citizens in the United States with the same rights as white people. This was a radical idea at that time. They were very often extremely unpopular. Their meetings were broken up. One of them, the abolitionist editor of Lovejoy, was killed by a mob. But the abolitionists had this input. They, they worked on public opinion. They were not legislators, you know. They said, we've got to change public opinion so people are committed to the realization of the immorality of slavery. Now, anti-slavery is a guy like Lincoln. Lincoln was not an abolitionist. He never claimed to be an abolitionist. He never advocated the immediate end of slavery, and he never quite got around to full equality for black people. But he was deeply opposed to the westward expansion of slavery. Anti-slavery in politics basically means keeping slavery where it is, not abolishing it immediately, but not letting it spread anymore into the western territories. Now, people like Lincoln said that will put it, as he said, on the road to ultimate extinction. It'll die out eventually. When? Sometimes he said 1900. Sometimes he said it may be 100 years. That'd be like 1950. It's certainly not immediate. But Lincoln also hated slavery. There is no question about it. He did. But he was a politician, and he had to work within the political framework, the constitutional framework. There was nothing in the Constitution that gave the federal government the power to abolish slavery. Slavery is a state institution. It's supported by the federal government, but it's created by the states. And there's no way that a politician in Illinois can abolish slavery in Mississippi. He just has no power over it. So Lincoln worked on what was politically viable, which was preventing slavery from spreading further than it had. So what is the connection between Lincoln and the abolitionists? They disagreed. The abolitionists criticized him many times for not being radical enough. But it's also symbiotic. Lincoln understood that the abolitionists were creating public sentiment which made his anti-slavery politics possible. So there was a kind of competitive and cooperative relationship at the same time, which made it as you said, complicated. The politics of it became much more apparent to me. Actually, I, I felt the parallel with attitudes about gays and lesbians in this country. There was kind of a threshold event. I mean, Lincoln did not take office thinking that even over the course of the next 20 years, they're going to free all the slaves, anything like that. Oh, hardly. Yeah, things in a civil war, things happen very, very fast, you know. Nobody anticipated when the war... Lincoln said that. I mean, you know, Lincoln, one of, Lincoln is a brilliant writer. You read his material, his speeches, his letters, they're fantastic. In his second inaugural address, which he delivered in, you know, March 1865, which is a great speech about the Civil War. What is this war about? And he said, point blank, slavery was the cause of this war. Let's face it, folks, you know, I'm paraphrasing. We know that slavery was the cause. Today, a lot of people own our states' rights, local lit, and forget it. Lincoln knew what it was all about. But he said nobody anticipated the, what was the word he used, um, stupendous, or something like that, 
result of the war. That is, that nobody anticipated slavery would be destroyed before the war even ended. But that's what happened, and Lincoln presided over it. He wasn't the one cause, but he was willing to go. You might almost say he was willing to go the way history was going, and not everybody is willing to do that. Could you talk a little bit about that progress? Uh, you said, for instance, New York stopped being a slave state in the 1820s, right? Yeah, I mean, after the American Revolution, the northern states put slave, you know, abolished slavery gradually. They passed these gradual laws. Massachusetts did it pretty quickly. Pennsylvania, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut abolished slavery gradually. So it took a long time, down to the 1820s in some of these places. And then new states came in above the Mason-Dixon line, like Ohio and Indiana, without, which had no slavery. But at the same time, slavery in the South is spreading westward. So, you know, at the time of the Revolution, it's Maryland, Virginia, the plantation states, South Carolina, Georgia. But then you've got Mississippi, Alabama, Louisiana. Slavery is spreading westward, growing. At the time of the first census, there were like three-quarters of a million slaves, 1790. By the time of the Civil War, there were four million slaves. In other words, slavery was not dying out. Slavery was not declining. It was growing. It was more profitable. The slave owners were richer. Anybody who thinks slavery was going to die out on its own, forget it. It was not. In fact, there's no place that slavery ever died out on its own. It needs human action to get rid of slavery, whether it's laws, like in the North, or violence, like in the war, like in the South. So, you know, civil war is a horrible thing. But I have never yet seen a plausible scenario for the peaceful end of slavery in the United States. The way that Abraham Lincoln thought about the end of slavery coming is, you know, he's talking about essentially the federal government paying people, reimbursing them for the loss of their property, their slaves. And so, you know, eventually you buy them out. Right. That was his plan for 10 years. And he proposed it several times in the first two years of the Civil War. He proposed constitutional amendments. He brought Southern representatives into the meet with him. He kept proposing this. The problem is the Southerners said, no, we don't, we don't want your money, Lincoln. We want our slaves. We want to keep our slaves. We don't care about your money. So it never got anywhere this compensated, this plan of compensated. That's what the British had done in the West Indies. You know, in 1833, the British abolished slavery in their empire, the Caribbean mostly, and they paid off the slave owners. They paid them a lot of money, 20 million pounds, which is a lot of money back then. They didn't give anything to the slaves, you know, but the owners got a big influx of money for losing their slave property. Something else that, <laughs> I don't know how I missed this, I mean, I did take history class in ninth and 10th grade, and, but somehow I miss the fact that when the Civil War came about, for the Union, it included four pro-slavery states. Four slave states, the border states, of course. Maryland, Delaware, Kentucky, Missouri. This is like three quarters of a million slaves in those states. And that makes Abraham Lincoln's job much more complex. Yeah, that's what I was about to say. Particularly in the first year of the war, he's got to make sure that those four slave states do not join the Confederacy. Because that would, the Confederacy ended up being 11 states. If those four had joined, it would have been 15. And uh, the task of the Union would have been almost impossible. Lincoln spends a lot of time keeping Kentucky in the, in the Union. Delaware is less important because Maryland, it's cut off. Mer Delaware can't secede until Maryland does. But Maryland, Missouri, Kentucky, 
Yes, but that means you can't go very quickly on slavery. You've got these slave states who are willing to fight for the Union, but not willing to fight if abolishing slavery is the uh, primary cause, uh, reason for the war. So that means that when the Civil War started, they were doing a pretty soft sell about the role of slavery. And well, Lincoln says, look, this war is not about slavery. It's about the Union. We're trying to preserve the Union, and we're not trying to abolish slavery. But very, very quickly, slavery begins to unravel because slaves understand that as soon as the Union Army appears, the power balance has changed. Even if Lincoln says we're not here to get rid of slavery, slaves say, I don't care what he says. I'm running away to Union lines because I can get freedom there. And very quickly, Union armies say, we're not sending these guys back. They put them to work. Let them dig ditches for us or fortifications. So the Union Army becomes a refuge for slaves. They come to be called contrabands, the contrabands, and they have to set up contraband camps and contraband schools. And uh, this forces the issue of slavery onto the national agenda. The government's got to start making policy about slavery because these slaves are forcing it on them. And certainly by 1862, Lincoln is saying, we're not sending them back. And he's pushing very hard for his plan of emancipation. He offers it to the border states. Money. We're going to give you money. We'll get rid of your free Negroes. You don't want them. We'll send them abroad. They refuse. Delaware. Look at Delaware. Delaware has 1,800 slaves. That's nothing, right? Mm -hmm. Lincoln starts with Delaware. He calls in there one congressman, other pieces. Look, I've got the plan here. Delaware can lead the way to emancipation. We'll give you money. You can do it gradually. It'll take till 1900 to get rid of these slaves. We'll ship them out of the country for you. Delaware says, no, we don't want this, Lincoln. We want our 1,800 slaves. If Delaware, with 1,800 slaves, will not pick up this plan, do you think Mississippi, with 800,000 slaves, is going to do it? South Carolina? Nope. This plan is is a non-starter. I kind of marveled at how the politics played out around the slaves fleeing from slavery, going to the Union. And then, you know, of course, some of the commanders in the field are say, hey, we can't send them back. And others are, hey, it's property, give it back to them. It struck me as kind of a case of don't ask, don't tell. Well, in a way, that's what it is. And Lincoln lets them all do what, you know, Butler at Fortress Monroe says we're not sending them back. He gets a note from the Secretary of War saying, your policy is approved. Well, that's, you know, that's what we call the passive voice. Our students are not supposed to write that way. Your policy <laughs> is approved. By who? Who approved this policy? They don't say. Is it Lincoln? Is it the cabinet? Your policy is approved. Other commanders are sending back fugitive slaves. Lincoln doesn't say anything to them. Lincoln is letting things play out, and he doesn't want to have a uniform policy a public policy quite yet. So he just lets things happen. He's interested in what's going to happen. What's going to happen if we have refuge for some... By 1863, Lincoln is saying, we want to encourage them to run away. After the Emancipation Proclamation, the army's got to encourage slaves to flee and to find freedom. And that'll undermine the Confederacy and help us win the war. The amazing finesse of politics that's involved in that that most people don't seem to realize is the Emancipation Proclamation was about the slaves of those who were not in the Union. Right. So it doesn't say anything about the four states that are part of the Union. No. Well, the thing is, the Emancipation Proclamation is a military order, right? 
It's issued, as Lincoln says, on military necessity. The constitutional justification for it is Lincoln as commander-in-chief. That's what the president is, commander-in-chief of the armed forces. It's a weapon against the Confederacy to win the war. Well, the four slave states in the Union are not at war with the Union, right? So this has no bearing on them. It's not a military measure there. So slavery there doesn't end in Kentucky and Delaware. Slavery doesn't end until the end of 1865 when the 13th Amendment is added to the Constitution. Maryland gets rid of slavery in 1864. Anti-slavery people kind of take over the government of Maryland. But, yeah, the Emancipation Proclamation applies to the Confederate South. In fact, Lincoln exempts some areas of the Confederacy, saying, well, look, the war's over there, so I don't have any power anymore. Although his motivations are just as political as military. But the main point is, it's issued as a military order to weaken the other side. I still have to imagine that the four Union slave states had to say, oh, hey, our, our time's going to be up if this comes true. You would think so. But slave owners, uh, how, how shall I put this? They have tunnel vision. They love having slaves, and they don't think very far into the future. You know, in 1865, in January and February 1865, two or three months before the end of the war, people were still buying slaves in Richmond, Virginia. They had a big slave market. People were buying slaves. You say, what is this? Slavery is going to end in two months. They're purchasing slaves. They wanted those slaves. I'm sorry. So you might think that Maryland and Kentucky would say, look, slavery's on the way out. But they didn't think that way. They just said, look, well, it's going out in the Confederacy, but we're going to keep our slaves here. One of the tools that I think Abraham Lincoln and, I mean, the North in general used was once they realized that the slaves can be a big bargaining chip, they want to encourage slaves. You can have your freedom if you come and you fight against the South. Yeah, well, of course, Lincoln put slaves in the army, starting with the Emancipation Proclamation. And by the end of the war, 180,000 black men had served in the Union Army. That was a critical turning point in the war because it's not just helping to win the war. It's putting the question of black citizenship on the agenda. If you fight and die for the nation, you have staked a claim to your rights within the nation, right? And once the Emancipation Proclamation is issued, Lincoln drops the whole question of sending slaves out of the country. He never mentions it again. You don't put people in the army and then tell them you've got to kick them out of the country. So putting blacks in the army changes the whole tenor of public policy for the last two years of the war. Could we talk a little bit, take a detour towards colonization? People know about Liberia, which was actually a colony in that sense. Talk about the rise and fall of this as an idea for the black problem. It seems absurd, right, looking back. You've got four million slaves. How are you going to send them all out of the country? That's ridiculous. Although, hey, we've got people today, presidential candidates, saying they're going to send 11 million. You probably can't name which one it is that says that. It is, it is said. <laughs> okay. But this was the labor force of the South. Uh, slaves were producing the most valuable crop in the world, cotton at that time. Shipping them out of the country didn't make much economic sense. But colonization, actually, you know, Lincoln started out as a member of the Whig Party. He was a great admirer of Henry Clay, the statesman from Kentucky. Lincoln was born in Kentucky, even though he grew up in Indiana and then Illinois. But he admired Henry Clay very much. And Clay was a kind of an anti-slavery slave owner. Clay owned a plantation, but he was try he's trying to figure out ways of getting rid of slavery in Kentucky. And he came up with this plan, which Lincoln later adopted, 
which included colonization. Clay was actually president of the American Colonization Society. Basically, Lincoln said, racism is so deep in America that black people will never enjoy equal rights here. They deserve to be free, they should be free, but they should go somewhere else where they will enjoy the rights they can never enjoy in the United States. Now, Lincoln said it should be voluntary. Clay wanted to ship them out whether they wanted to go or not. So did Jefferson, by the way. Lincoln said it should be voluntary, but he would certainly give them a push, you know, a strong incentives to leave. And uh, he met with black people during the beginning of the Civil War, early years, and he talked about colonization. But it never got anywhere because the vast majority of African Americans did not want to leave the country. They wanted their rights here. They demanded to be recognized as Americans. There were some who went to Liberia, but not that many. Most blacks agitated for their equal rights in the United States. They did not want to leave the country. Actually, I found it kind of amazing to realize the number of plans that there were for various gradations of rights. It's like, well, okay, you can have your natural human rights that are mentioned in the Declaration right. of Independence, but that doesn't mean you can vote. Well, that was Lincoln's position in the Lincoln-Douglas debates, where Stephen Douglas accused him of believing in, quote, Negro equality, which was a you know, nuclear weapon of politics at that time. It was like calling someone a communist during the Cold War. Lincoln believes in Negro equality. And Lincoln said, no, no, I do not believe in Negro equality. I believe in equality of natural rights. Negroes are included when they say all men are created equal, are entitled to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Life, that's pretty clear. Liberty, that's why you don't have slavery. Pursuit of happiness is kind of an ability to have economic advancement. But there are a lot of other rights. There are civil rights, the right to testify in court, to sue and be sued. I'm not in favor of that, said Lincoln. What about political rights, the right to vote? No, I'm not really in favor of that either. Natural rights, yes. Civil rights, political rights, no. They made, as you said, they made these distinctions back then. We don't really make them now. People just want their rights. You know, they don't start saying, I want this right, but not that right. But this was very common in the mid-19th century to distinguish among these various kinds of rights. The amazingly different ways that people assumed, as if blacks were in fact a completely different species or something, is amazing. The, the one that it made me laugh and groan and cry is the word drapetomania. 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 And I don't think, I don't think you can find that in the DSM-5. Probably not. Dr. Samuel Cartwright, a Southern physician, wrote an article in a medical journal saying, I've diagnosed this new malady, this disease previously unknown to medical science, drapetomania. What is it? It's a disease causing slaves to run away. You see, Southerners <laughs> thought that slaves loved being slaves. They were well-treated. They weren't unemployed. In old age, they were cared for. They were treated well, according to the white Southerners. Why would they run away? It must be a disease that's making them run away. They're ill. Or maybe it's the Underground Railroad. Every time a slave ran away, they oh, oh, the Underground Railroad got them. The Underground Railroad was not getting slaves to run away. It was helping them once they did. But Southerners couldn't quite fathom that. So, yeah, drapetomania, a disease causing Negroes to run away, said Dr. Samuel Cartwright. Now, again, you'll find that one in Gateway to Freedom, The Hidden History of the Underground Railroad, The Fiery Trial, Abraham Lincoln and American Slavery. That came out back in 2010. You'll find a lot of incredible 
historical insights, all courtesy of Eric Foner, who's in Department of History at Columbia University. There's a few more things I wanted to cover, Eric, before we hang up. One of them was the ideas about reconstruction. I mean, when you perceive an end to the Civil War, you say, okay, well, how do we make a single nation? And I was oblivious to this until uh, a couple years ago when I had a guest on who's from Texas, Chris Tomlinson, and his family, back several generations, owned slaves. And Texas was one of those states that, how do you reincorporate them into the union? And it was pretty tricky to, uh, question. But my sense is, and you can tell me I'm foolish for thinking this, is if not for Andrew Johnson ascending to the throne, if it wasn't for that, there might have been a chance for Reconstruction to go significantly better. Well, maybe. Andrew Johnson was certainly probably the worst president in American history. He lacked all of Lincoln's elements of greatness. He was deeply, deeply racist. He couldn't get along with Congress. He had no sense of public sentiment. And he had no belief in any rights for African Americans. Reconstruction is very complicated. <laughs> I wrote a 600-page book on Reconstruction. The main point to understand about Reconstruction is it was an attempt to really create democracy in this country for the first time, interracial democracy. It was an attempt to elevate four million black people to the status of equal citizens. The Congress rewrote the Constitution, the 14th Amendment, the 15th Amendment, to introduce for the first time the notion of equal citizenship regardless of race. They empowered black people in the South, black men to vote. New governments were set up which tried to bring the South back into, you know, to rebuild it and create public education for the first time there and many other things. Reconstruction inspired a violent backlash, the Ku Klux Klan and groups like that. These were American terrorists. The Ku Klux Klan killed more Americans than Osama bin Laden did. You know, this is homegrown American terror. Unfortunately, eventually the North kind of retreated or gave up and the White Southerners regained control in the South and instituted Jim Crow. The failure of Reconstruction led to the rise of segregation, disenfranchisement, etc. The failure of Reconstruction was a tragedy for American life. It took another hundred years until what we call the Second Reconstruction, the Civil Rights Revolution, to get these issues back onto the front part of the national agenda. Reconstruction is also an example of how historical mythology can be very pernicious. You know, for a long, long time, there was this idea, oh, Reconstruction, you know, the vindictive North just punished the South. They suffered so much. You know, this is the idea that giving rights to black people is a punishment to whites. You hear that around today, you know. People resent progress that blacks have made. It's, it makes them feel bad. I don't know why. You know, and that it, the big mistake was giving blacks the right to vote. And that was the cause of all the problems of Reconstruction. And therefore, the South was correct to take the right to vote away. This view of history fed right into the legitimation of the Jim Crow system. We tried giving them their rights. They blew it. So therefore, the, the white South is correct to deny African Americans their basic rights, which they did for, you know, 75 years after that. So it's a long story. We'll have to have another hour on that sometime. But the one thing to get away from is the idea of Reconstruction as a punishment to the South. It certainly wasn't a punishment to the four million former slaves. It was an attempt to make them equal members of American society, which is what we claim to be, a land of equality. But in the aftermath of slavery, it was very difficult to do that.
I think that racism was deeply ensconced in the Northern ideas as well as the Southern. Even people who were anti-slavery, that didn't mean that they were particularly racially sensitive or anything like that. How big a role was that versus the results of centuries of slavery in the South? Do you have any sense of the balance? Uh, You know, uh, racism is part of history, or another way to put it, racism has a history. It's not just a constant. Some people use it as a sort of deus ex machina. You can't explain something, you just say, oh, racism, racism, there's the explanation, that's the end of conversation. Racism diminished in the last two years of the Civil War because of the service of black soldiers. And in early Reconstruction, whatever their personal views about black people were, the majority of Congress said, we are going to create a country of equality now. We never did it before. Slavery made that impossible. Now we have the chance to write the idea of equality into our laws and constitution, and they did it. Does that mean they loved every person? No, but that's not, that's not politics. Loving your neighbor, that, you know, that's not what politics is about. Politics is about principle, about power, about, you know, how society ought to be organized, and the 14th Amendment, equal protection under the law for everybody, there were racist people who supported that because they said this is what America is or is supposed to be, a land of equality. So they tried. It, eventually, they, yes, they retreated from that by the 1870s. But the remarkable thing is that Reconstruction was attempted at all, really, in the aftermath of 250 years of slavery. Well, folks, there's a whole lot that you can learn by reading Gateway to Freedom, The Hidden History of the Underground Railroad, or The Fiery Trial, Abraham Lincoln and American Slavery, or some of the 21 other books that Eric Foner has been part of making. I don't have time to cover them all today, but I think I probably would like to have you back, Eric, assuming you're still up for it. There's so much to cover, and I really appreciate I I think it makes a difference today. We will repeat the errors of yesterday if we don't learn from history. Well, I agree with you. Thanks for having me, Mark. And, you know, I'm a teacher of history, so I think it's important for people to know about this history, obviously. Thanks for joining me for Spirit in Action. Okay. Nice to talk to you. Bye-bye. Find Columbia Professor of History, Eric Foner, on his website, ericfoner.com. Foner is F-O-N-E-R. Track down his 20-plus books, get educated, and use that knowledge to learn from the errors and potentials of our past and to make a brighter future. We'll see you next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. This Spirit in Action program is an effort of Northern Spirit Radio. You can listen to our programs and find links and information about us and our guests on our website, northernspiritradio.org. Thank you for listening. I am your host, Mark Helpsmeet, and I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice